What if you turned on the news and got as many ideas as you do reasons for exasperation? What if you saw people collaborating and cooperating and shifting power in all sorts of ways we're usually told are impossible? Well, that's what the Laura Flanders Show is all about. We set out to bring you reporting not on somebody's pipe dream of how things could be, but on real work that is happening right now and shifting power across this country and the world. We don't receive money from corporations or governments. We're backed by you, our listeners and supporters. So pony up some support today at lauraflanders.org. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, the TV and radio program that seeks to raise radical spirits by interviewing forward-thinking people with real-life models of shifting power from the few to the many in the worlds of arts, entrepreneurship, and governance. This week, days of wonder, days of rage. We're living through an information revolution as profound as any since Gutenberg and the printing press. But are we the people, the so-called users using the tech, or is the tech using us? And for what ends? Can we harness this particular transformation for good? That's the question, and we have some answers. This week on The Laura Flanders Show, the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Welcome. Alexa, Siri, are you out there? Just who is in our audience? By 2021, the research firm Ovum reports that there will be almost as many voice-activated assistants on the planet as there are people. While it took three decades for mobile phones to outnumber humans, Alexa and her ilk look likely to get there in less than half that time. That's what they say. So what happens to us? New tools have always issued in new economic and social orders from the printing press to the pilotless drone. But does today's smart tech pose a threat to us or a promise? As one of my guests today has written, what if we thought of the future as a verb? It's ours, at least until it's theirs. Joining me today is Douglas Rushkoff, host of Team Human, the aforementioned writer. He is the author of a new book by the same name. Also Nabil Hussain, technologist and abolitionist, who's worked with the School for Poetic Computation, about which more later. And last, Chancy Fleet, disability justice advocate and fellow with Data and Society, working at the intersections of disability and technology. Welcome all. All right, so Doug, you lay out a pretty grim scenario of technology being, as you put it, anti-human by design. How so? Well, I don't know that people come up with technologies in an anti-human way, you know, and maybe even, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the Google boys, they were first thinking, we're going to make something that helps people accomplish this or that. But once they really have to make a whole lot of money with these, with these technologies, once they've taken on investment and they're expected to deliver a thousand X return, what happens is the technologies end up really playing the people instead of people playing the technology. You're talking about embedded in the actual code. Yeah. How? Well, if you think of uh, an algorithm, you know, an algorithm on Facebook is using data from your past in order to find out what, you know, psychological statistical bucket to put you in, in order to know which behavioral finance techniques to use to get you to do 
what it has been told to get you to do. And how different is that from other technology? I mean, as I've said, we've had lots of new technology. It's all changed our lives. Well, I guess the main difference with these computational technologies is that they learn from what you do and adapt to your defenses. So this is the first time, I mean, a, a television ad, I guess they could see if it works or not, and then next quarter, try something else. Mm -hmm. The algorithm is going to try something else the next second, the next second, the next second, and then once it finds something that works, it's going to tell all the other algorithms, oh, look, this works on this human, you try it on your humans. I mean, and some of them are, are true. I mean, what these technologies learn to exploit are our painstakingly evolved social mechanisms, all the mechanisms that we've developed to establish rapport with one another, our, our reciprocal altruism. You know, if they can figure out a way to make an algorithm cry like a little baby and elicit my maternal instinct to, to heal it, um, they'll use it. I and mean, that's bad? That is bad. Because the reason why it's bad is because instead of helping me connect with other people, it's helping corporations extract data from me, extract money from me, and get me to behave more predictably, right? So as the algorithms and smartphones get smarter about us, we get dumber about them, and our behavior becomes more programmed, more automatic, less human. All right, so you've heard his case. Chansey, Nabil, who wants to jump in here? Nabil. Yeah, I mean, I think technology has a class character. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, when I, I call myself a technologist, I use the term very broadly. Um, like, I consider writing as technology, for example. And, like, I trust this technology that I'm using right now a lot more than I trust uh, my smartphone or my laptop. Different cultures have had and still have different technologies and the, the specific um, computing technology that we have um, today emerged from uh, imperialism, from, from the U.S. and U.K. and other related imperialist powers, military-industrial complex. They still retain great control over the infrastructure that underlies this, whether that's the undersea cables that transmit data back and forth across the world, um, the physical supply chains of manufacturing and so forth. Um, so I would say this technology is very much under the control of people who don't have the interests of me or my communities. All right, so that still talks to the control. Chancy, to you, what about this? technological existential threat. I'm checking this out through the lens of accessibility. I work with communities of disability, many of whom, like myself, are happy to use all kinds of platforms, whether it be computers, smartphones, braille displays, slates and styluses, which are that how Louis Braille would have written Braille, um, analog and digital technologies. Many of us are comfortable with the diversity of those. But there is this mainstream narrative, and there is some some grounding for it, that conversational interfaces like Siri and Alexa are um, gate creators for people who have disabilities that impact motor interaction, um, impact typical workflows, or impact someone's desire to avoid complexity. So you and mean like a gateway in, not a gatekeeper? A gateway in, exactly. Out. And I've seen folks with motor and speech impairments and memory impairments have a great deal of success with these interfaces. But I'm troubled in a couple of ways. Um, for one thing, that mainstream me media narrative misses the fact that it's a small curated feature set that really hangs on um, habits of consumption more than habits of creation or even mm -hmm. habits of communication. It would be awfully hard to write a novel with Alexa. 
And by suggesting that folks in our community that are being challenged by the limitations in contemporary, uh, in contemporary technology design should just gravitate to these conversational assistants, they are suggesting that because of the way we are embodied, we ought to do less. The other thing that I find a little bit problematic is that we don't actually need to submit our conversations to a server in order to have workable conversational mm-hmm. interfaces. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to disentangle, disentangle the ability to use a different workflow from the necessity to submit ourselves and our lives to uh, inspection by the, the developers and the cloud. Definitely from a technical perspective, there's no reason that these technologies have to work in this way. It's that Google and Amazon want them to work in this way for their own data collection, surveillance, resource extraction, and exploitation of us as consumers, as workers. So that's where Team Human comes in. Right. I mean, it's really easy, especially for those of us who are not data scientists or, or computer engineers, it's, it's really difficult for us not to accept these technologies at face value. We think, oh, this is what the technology can do, rather than, oh, this is what the, the shareholders of this company are allowing this mm. technology to do. If anything, most of us look at the tech and figure, oh, well, it's just a technology, so it's neutral, mm. right? It's like, oh, guns don't kill people, people kill, you know, or this technology is just what it is. But as we look at the algorithms and the way they work, what we find out is, oh, no, they're not neutral at all. These algorithms are racist. You know, they don't feel racism, but they have embedded in them certain value systems, whether they're extractive, and they're going to just do whatever we tell them to do. You know, and that's, I mean, sadly or not, that's true of anything. It's true even of speech, mm-hmm. of text. You know, the language we use to speak is embedded with values, mm-hmm. but, but they, they don't quite change as dramatically and not as intentionally. This is Laura Flanders. I'm Laura. My guests are media theorist and author Doug Rushkoff. His latest book is Team Human, based on his podcast of the same name. Data and Society fellow Chauncey Fleet, who was Library Journal's mover and shaker of 17 when she jump-started a conversation on tactile literacy, spatial learning, and more. And technologist, educator, and organizer Nabil Hussain, who's one of the organizers of Code Ecologies and the School for Poetic Computation. After the break, I ask my crew whether when it comes to moving forward, we can flip the script on tech from dehumanizing to humanizing, and even from competition to cooperation. And if so, how? Please take a moment to follow us on social media, share the posts you like, and add your comments. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, do so at our website, lauraflanders.org forward slash listen. As a podcast subscriber, you'll receive additional content, including my weekly commentaries, The F Word, and our new minicast, which we're calling Music in the Middle, where Jeannie Hopper and I, she's the show's producer and music curator, talk about the featured tunes. For the pilot episode, we discuss TQX's album, Global Intimacy. Here's a taste of TQX with Do Not React, featuring Invenio singers. And then they can use the system to go back in time and scrutinize every decision you've ever made. We will have completed the reverse engineering of the human brain. 
computers at that time would be far more powerful than the human brain. The singularity is, is a new revolution where these machines will continue to grow exponentially in power. They'll be able to actually improve their own software design. By 2045, we'll have expanded the intelligence of our human machine civilization a billion fold. That will be singularity. One thing that I've been thinking about is our kind of basic myth around human evolution, the sort of survival of the fittest um, model that is now being questioned at the level of evolutionary science. How could we flip the script on how this technology develops going forward? Could we embed cooperation, oh. not competition? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If anything, networking technology emerged as a collaborative act. It, it was have. a way for terminals to share computing resources. You know, that was how we started with it. And, and certainly, we can flip the script on how we understand evolution. All we have to do is read Darwin and find out, oh, this isn't the story of competing individuals. This is the story of how species learned to collaborate and cooperate. Is that poetic competition? Is that what the Institute is all about? Uh, yeah, I could maybe just speak a little bit about yeah. the school, just very briefly. School. Um, so the School for Poetic Computation is an independent artist-run tech school here in New York. One, one of the things that we try to do at SFPC, as we call it, is, um, is yeah, to, to think about the other possibilities for technology, for our communities, and for what could be done as opposed to only like what, what? what has been done. Like, for example, I took, um, before I, I, I took, a, I took two weeks of evening classes there one summer, 2017, and I made uh, a rhyme generator based on the rhymes of my favorite rapper, MF Doom, and uh, I used... Uh, a library, a software library, which is code that someone else has basically packaged it up for you to use in your own program um, called Pronouncing. Uh, and this Pronouncing library was based on a Pronouncing Dictionary, which was funded by the U.S. government, mm-hmm. uh, DARPA, like the Internet and many other important projects in computing history. Defense Department. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, this, pronunci- this Pronouncing Dictionary only represents uh, general American English in the list of pronunciations for a given word, which is not how this artist pronounced words for the most part. And it's, so it's like the biases that were embedded in this technology before I was born by the U.S. military ended up playing out in my art project. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of the ways that these things do tend to accumulate over time. Um, but like these decisions could have been made differently. And even now, it's, it's not too late. And Chancey, you and your working dog, who, who just wanted to be part of the conversation <laughs> there, um, what would you like to see? What we need are strong, solid allies. We need developers to really know something about accessibility and to challenge the notion that, for example, some things are too visual. I'll give you an example. At the New York Public Library, where I work, we have a program called Dimensions, and we can teach blind and sighted people to work together to create maps and art Mm. and infographics with raised line graphics and anyone can come and learn and we do it collaboratively and we're troubling that notion that some things are just too visual. Any spatial information we can render but if I spoke to a random person in a Best Buy or a graphic design school that I wanted to enter I think that they would tell me that I might be happier doing something else and I'd like that to stop. Mm. Mm. The other thing that we really need is a strong core of people who can help you when your abilities are changing or when your ambitions are changing to understand how to use the technology you want rather than passively receive the technology you've been prescribed. When you walk into a Best Buy, when you walk into a computer lab in an average place, 
and the way you use your tools is not average, folks will tell you that they don't know how to help you and that your path is probably hard. But if you can find people who understand the workflows, who have had the problems and knocked down the barriers, they can show you how to do so. Another thing we do at the library is one-on-one -on -one coaching that's powered by peers who are native users of technology. And we take the mystery away. So and when you take the mystery away, you can get on with your work. This goes back to actual people. Right. Yes. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You know, when, when I used to teach at NYU's interactive telecommunications program, when we started an assistive technologies course there, and what we very quickly learned was that as you make technology more friendly to uh, potentially disabled people, you make it more friendly to everybody. Well, it becomes, we are all potentially disabled. Exactly, yes. that too. But, but you actually make the technology better. And, and it's not just because it's, it's better uh, uh, user interfaces, but because your orientation has changed from what can I do to this person with this technology mm -hmm. to what am I allowing this person to do with the technology. And that's not the bias that Silicon Valley has right now. Last word from you, Nabil. Yeah, I, I, would, I just want to maybe highlight some of the work that's going on um, towards these ends. Uh, I don't know how many folks are familiar with a group called Cooperation Jackson. Yep. Um, but they're uh, a bunch of organizers down in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a poor, mostly probably 80% black city in uh, the U.S. Deep South. Um, they have a whole range of initiatives around this, um, including, what is it, the Community Production Initiative? Maker Lab. Um, yeah, and uh, they, they're, they're definitely in need of funding in order to um, basically take a greater portion of this technology's development away from Silicon Valley and away from some of these other entities and put it into the hands of their community um, to serve uh, their own goals. And I, I believe technology can be used for this. It's obviously not the way that uh, capitalists who predominantly control society's resources choose to invest them, um, but there's, there's nothing that prevents us from doing it to this, the extent that we can. And basically expropriating them, <laughs> taking their wealth, and then reallocating it towards a different end. Perfect. We're going to have to close it there, but clearly we've just started this conversation. Nabil, Doug, Chansey, thanks so much for coming in. If you want to find out more about Cooperation Jackson, you can at our website. We were pretty much there at the birth and have done a lot of coverage. That's lauraflanders.org. So thank you all. It's great to have you. Thank you. That was technologist, educator, and organizer Nabil Hussain, a co-organizer at Code Ecologies and the School for Poetic Computation, Data and Society fellow Chasi Fleet, and media theorist and author Doug Rushkoff. His latest book and the title of his podcast is Team Human. Next, a clip from a video Rushkoff produced on Present Shock. To see him in action and watch the short film, go to www.lauraflanders.org. As we've heard, the new digital age poses as much a threat as a boon to our liberty and sense of self and society. We're all suffering from what our guest Doug Rushkoff calls present shock, an onslaught of anti-human tech. Fortunately, he says there is a solution, an opportunity lies before us to create more space for people to be people by embracing and revivifying the present. The choice is ours. Here's Doug. When I first encountered the internet, I thought it was going to set us all free. We were all going to work at home in our underwear, trading things back and forth. It was a world where anything was possible, and we were going to do it in our own time. But instead, we strap these devices to ourselves and have them ping us every time somebody texts us or messages us, as if we're supposed to respond to everything, as if it's this real-time emergency crisis. And that's what's put us in this state of present shock. 
the only kind of people that were interrupted this frequently and this incessantly used to be, you know, 911 operators and air traffic controllers. And they would only do it for two or three hours during the day, and they would be medicated in order to live that way. Present shock, present shock. Present shock is the human response to living in a world where everything happens now. It's a real-time, always-on existence without any sense of beginning, middle, or an end. It's just now. On the one hand, you could just go into the moment. You could have this kind of a Tao-like sense of peace, and here we are, I'm in the present, but most of us aren't there. Most of us are instead chasing this kind of false now of our Twitter feeds and our email inboxes, trying to catch up with the moment as if the present wasn't something we live in, but the present was something we had a grasp to. And the problem for us is the inability to be in touch with any of the natural rhythms that underlie our human experience. Kronos and Kairos. The ancient Greeks had two words for time. Kronos, which means time on the clock, and kairos, which means human timing. So you could ask, you know, what time did you crash the car? Oh, I crashed it at 4.01. But what time do you tell dad you crashed the car? 4.17? No, you tell dad you crashed the car after he's had his drink and before he's opened the bills, right? That's kairos. It's the sense of readiness or human timing, something that only people can understand as we move through the temporal landscape of human experience. The industrial age was all about chronos. Time is money, do things faster, increase your production over time. And what we've ended up doing really is take 21st century technology and use it to reinforce the 13th century operating system. This is really the, the central problem of this age, this conflation and confusion between Kairos and Kronos, this use of technology really to take people out of the time that only people can understand. Program or be programmed. We're spending an increasing amount of our time on digital landscapes about which we know little or nothing. And we treat the web and these devices as if they're pre-existing conditions of nature, but they're not. They're platforms that were designed by people and corporations with very specific designs on, on who we are and what we do. Now, if you ask a kid, you know, what's Facebook for? They'll tell you, oh, Facebook's here to help me make friends. If you go to the boardroom at Facebook, I promise you, they're not sitting there thinking, how are we going to help little Johnny maintain his friendships? No, they're looking at how are they going to monetize Johnny's social graph and his big data. So this is why we're getting such unpredictable results with our technologies. We're incorporating them into our lives without any real sense of who made them and what they made them for. You know, and if you don't know what a program you're using is for, then chances are it's using you instead. Chronobiology. So I think the easiest way to contend with present shock is to embrace the present, find the present, explore and reify the rhythms that are informing who you are as a person and as a human organism just living on the planet. Most people don't realize that each phase of the moon corresponds to a different neurotransmitter in the body. The first week of a new moon, our body tends to be dominated by acetylcholine, which is a very specific neurotransmitter associated with new ideas and making new friends and being open-minded. If you're in the second week of a, of a moon, you tend to be dominated by serotonin, which is all about getting things done and being industrious and reaching conclusions. If you're in the third week, right after the full moon, you're dominated by dopamine. It's really the, the 
party neurotransmitter. You want to relax and, and enjoy people and not work, right? You're not about getting anything done. If you're in the last week of a moon, you tend to be dominated by norepinephrine. It's a very analytical chemical, one that's associated with organizing things, with moving above the situation and seeing what happens when, how do I sequence this, how should I plan my life, where do I put everything? It's kind of a colder state that's not really about bonding with other people and much more about figuring out the structures underlying things. The simplest things, day and night, seasons of the year, phases of the moon, these are how human beings grew up. This is what predated civilization. This is what makes us feel at home on planet Earth. And it's what can give us coherence to help find the rhythms by which people really live, to connect to the rhythms that everybody else is living and no longer be victims of present shock. Opportunity. Now, present shock is disorienting. I get that. Whenever we move from one technological age to another, there's bound to be a bit of wobble. But this moment's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to use technology and humanity really to embrace both kinds of time, to really bring them together, to create, if anything, a new synthesis in our understanding of time. What are the rhythms? What are the patterns underlying human experience? And how can we live really in harmony with them rather than constantly trying to work against them? Now, I think that we have a, a choice here. We can use these technologies in the wrong way, I'd argue, right, to, to create ever more conformity, more schedules, more restrictions, more regimentation, more robotic activity for people so that we're more efficient and get more done. Or we can use these technologies instead to create more time, more space for people to be people, free ourselves and write programs that allow us to return to human time and let our machines take care of Kronos for us, to restore the rhythms that give us coherence and that help us to rediscover one another culturally, socially, as really living organisms rather than uh, just cogs in a machine. This could be the moment that we release ourselves from really 2,000 years of understanding time as a burden, understanding time as something that contains human beings and instead see it as a partner. Right? We have Kronos to keep track of what's going on and we have Kairos to actually live it. If we can do that, then this moment of present shock will be the moment we remember as the time that we set ourselves free. That was a clip of a video featuring our guest, media theorist Doug Rushkoff. You can see the whole thing and find out more about all of our guests and all of our discussions on digital justice at lauraflanders.org. There are a lot in our archives. While you're there, cast a vote of support for women-owned and operated journalism by becoming a member. How about it? Make a one-time donation or spread it out by becoming a sustaining supporter for $2, $5, or, I don't know, $50 a month. Again, that is www. LauraFlanders.org forward slash donate. We rely on you. Next week, turbulence in the digital news industry and digital media trade unions. What do you think? I talk with labor organizer Nastaran Mohit of the News Guild of New York and one of the co-organizers of the union at Vice, Kim Kelly, as well as investigative reporter at BuzzFeed News and professor of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, Albert Samaha. Check us out. 
This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Monica Mohapatra, Charlotte Carpenter, Nat Needham, Natasha Gaspar, Jeannie Hopper, Joanna Pinto, and Dominic Marcella. The Laura Flanders Show is made possible from the Novo, Ford, Tomcat, Cloud Mountain, and Fonda Foundations, as well as by listeners like you. So thank you. Stay kind, stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura.